all you cool cats and kittens from the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood. And while we might spend a lot of time talking about the conspiratorial threads we see, from false flags and pandemics to climate change policies and the seeding of a fake alien invasion, we don't spend a lot of time talking about how frustrating and isolating it can be when we're the only ones within our families and friend groups to see or care about these things. It affects some more than others, but the majority of people have been conditioned to see us as illogical, crazy, unhinged, and even a potential threat. COVID showed just how easy it is for the big machine to break long-standing bonds and the ever-increasing string of highly charged events we've been served up since is eroding whatever's left for many people. What should be private medical decisions and personal political opinions are now the first boxes some people want to make sure they can check off on some made-up compatibility checklist. Society seems to be splitting down these lines and many conspiracy-minded folks fear being stuck on the outside of everything. Not to mention the material itself can take its own mental toll and the associations between the big R rabbit hole and the feelings of hopelessness, depression, and paranoia have been seen many times before. So today we're airing our festivist grievances, talking it out, and breathing a cathartic collective sigh of relief with John Kerwin, the author of The Conspiracy Theorist Survival Guide, a guidebook for persecuted truthers, who knows the pitfalls of walking the path less traveled as well as anyone. John was a longtime day trader as well as being a worship leader and pastor for decades, but because of his commitment to conspiratorial truths, he has paid a heavy price. Although instead of giving up, he has transmuted tragedy into opportunity with his new book, the material on his website, wakeuporelse.com, and conversations like the one we're going to have today, so let's do it. The conspiracy counselor, truther, therapist, and shoulder to cry on for the newly segregated this <laughs> holiday season, John, my man, welcome to the higher side. <laughs> wow, that's got to be the greatest intro I've ever gotten. That is spectacular. Thank you. Ah, <laughs> uh, too kind, too kind. I try. So you reached out with a copy of your book, which I appreciate, and I told you that the Christian framing isn't exactly my bag, but then I heard you on several previous interviews and got into the book a bit, and you do cover an area that is often neglected, which is the social consequences of being conspiracy-minded, and we're getting into the holidays. We're probably getting into gatherings where we might feel like the black sheep or the odd man out. And I thought it might be helpful for some people to at least feel like they aren't alone and know that others feel their same pain or have similar situations. So these things kind of pushed me over the threshold and here we are. And let's start with your own awakening, which I understand came from when you realized the Federal Reserve isn't exactly federal. Is that right? That is correct. It was back in 2017. I remember I was thinking of voting for John McCain. <laughs> when I look, look back on it now, it is so embarrassing because when you're a normie, your brain is shut off. You don't have a grid for wanting to know. So you're just doing life. What happens, though, with a lot of us, because the matrix, as we call it, is a physical construct, but it's also a metaphysical construct. So there's this aspect of it it's like, woo, it's like ethereal. It's like a bewitchment. And somehow there's an awakening going on. The great awakening is definitely happening. I mean, there's masses of people are just, well, it's raining red pills. It's kind of hard not to like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
it's raining red pills, man. The normies must be tribulating. Anyway, I get this tap on the shoulder from the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm just like doing life. And all of a sudden I notice, hey, the Federal Reserve isn't federal. Like, I realized it's a white building in Washington and it's called the Federal Reserve. You know, like Federal Express is not federal. But then I, I found out because I'm in the financial markets that it's a private bank in Puerto Rico and blah, blah, blah. And I go, wait a minute. <laughs> As you do. I'm like, obviously, these congressmen and senators know. And it's just like it dawns on you that the whole system is lying through their teeth. But this is the real punchline right here. And many of your subscribers will relate to this. When you have that first experience, this is your entry into the rabbit hole. You then ask yourself, well, if that's not true, what else isn't true? Right? Absolutely. Down you go. Right. And so this path, in your case, has taken you all the way to the flat earth and everything in between, right? Let me give you my bio. I always like to do this just to set the record straight. Sure. After the Federal Reserve, I think the next thing I looked at was the moon landing. Because what happens is, once you see, you start to see. Because the filters come off. It has to do with a lot of things. But one of them is the reticular activation center. That's a part of your brain that filters out things that are inconsistent with your paradigm. So, for instance, if you decide you're going to buy a Honda Accord, all of a sudden you're driving around now. Everywhere you look, there's Honda Accords. They come in through your into your consciousness now where before they were filtered out. So a lot of normies, if I can use that term lovingly, they have this filter where, you know, they're part of a tribe, they're normies. The central characteristic of a normie is they don't know and they don't want to know. That's their filter. Well, I started to know and then I started to look. And so once you start turning over rocks... <laughs> everything's just conspiracy. So the moon landing was easy. 9-11 was next. I was on 9-11 for about a year because that's a seminal one for a lot of people. If you can get past 9-11 and still think the Building 7, I mean, you got the 2,000 architects for 9-11 truth. How do you get by that? It's true. They like wrote affidavits. Like They're like, dude, I build these things and I knock them down. Okay, Building 7 came down with controlled demolition, period. I'm like, I believe you. <laughs> yeah. And you start to look, at least for me, 9-11 was very important. And I started to look into the concept of a false flag. And you realize, oh, my God, most major conflicts involved a false flag at the start. Like the general structure of a false flag is really relatively common when it comes to machinations of the big machine moves on the global chessboard and getting us yeah. into wars or starting conflicts. So you just put it into that continuum and you're like, oh, 9-11 is not this one-off crazy event. You just put it in the proper context and it's what you should expect a lot of the times. Yeah. The Lucy's have been very good at painting this picture of America, the beautiful and how Things like that wouldn't happen in modernity. False flags, you know. Forget about Project Norwoods and the Gulf of Tonkin and all of these things that are declassified, but it just starts picking up steam from there. After 9 11, 
Oh, no, it was 9-11 was the next thing. Then it was the moon landing. Moon landing at that point took me like five minutes, <laughs> which really boggles the mind because you're like, uh, it took me 50 years to find out the moon landing was fake. So then once you find out the moon landing is fake, flat earth is easy because the whole resistance to flat earth is how big it is. And people have that priori argument or a priori argument, I forget how you say that, but it's like you come to the table convinced there's no way the earth could be flat because all the governments and the media and all the people would have to be involved and the government can't keep secret. Yes, they can. <laughs> they sure can. And they are. <laughs> it's only supposedly 536 people have gone to space or whatever. Anyway, so underground bases, reptilian shapeshifters, the transpocalypse is probably the biggest gut punch when you realize most of the people that you see on the TV, the movies, and the media, the government are the opposite. The guy's a woman and the woman's a guy. On that one, what did it for me there was I saw, what's her name? I can't remember her name. She was a Playboy centerfold. I didn't actually see her. I just saw her on the cover. Right, uh, right. <laughs> she was a guy. No, I was doing my research and I came across the fact that this was the first male Playboy model. So she, her Wikipedia thing said she was born a guy. Playboy's telling me she was a guy. So I'm like, okay, she's a guy. Well, this individual was as beautiful as any woman I've ever looked at. Okay, what that did was it created a template for me where I was then able to accept, because your mind doesn't want to accept, you know, like the really beautiful movie stars and singers could be a male, right? Because they're so beautiful. Your mind refused to accept it. Well, once I saw that she was a male, and I was pretty strongly convinced she was a male, the filter came off, right? And once you know the anatomical clues, like the shape of the man's head versus the woman's head and the size of it, the slope of the shoulders, the ring fingers longer than the women, all of these anatomical clues are easy to see. And you start going like, oh, not her, you know? I mean, you name it. <laughs> They're all guys. Apparently, this woman, I was just wanting to get the name, Cossie, C-O-S-S-E-Y is her last name. She was featured in Playboy in 1981, and she actually was outed against her will. So this was not supposed to be public knowledge. And then once she was outed, she reappeared in the magazine in 1991. So... That might surprise some people that it goes back that far. And I do have questions for you about the trans apocalypse, as you call it, and some of the names that are in there. But before we get hung up on specific little things, proceed on through uh, maybe some of the other rabbit holes that you went down. Yeah, well, of course, during this period of discovery, I'm married to a beautiful woman who I love to this moment, but she's a normie. And armies don't know, they don't want to know, and they don't want you to know. And so that started the process of my marriage of 24 years ending in divorce like two years ago. Because the next one was the Mandela effect. Now, I'm coming from a biblical worldview. I got radically saved at 23, ended up in the ministry, full-time ministry for like 10 years in a big church, then another 20 years in like lay ministry as a worship leader. And so... I find out like the mirror, mirror on the wall never existed. It's magic mirror. 
Grand Central Station never existed. It was always a Grand Central Terminal. The Monopoly guy never had a monocle. That was the one that really convinced me. <laughs> and you go down the line, and there's thousands of these things. There's just no way statistically. Well, guess what? The things that are changing in our environment includes the Bible. All right, this is a big problem for the church because the Bible seems to teach that it couldn't possibly change. Thy word is forever settled in heaven. Well, it turns out that it doesn't mean that because the term scripture and the term word of God are not the same thing. And that's they're being conflated to mean the same thing. It doesn't say the scripture is forever preserved on the pages of the book. Right. And. So I understand you have four kids with your ex-wife, and obviously you were in the ministry for, you say, 24 years. I mean, this has been a part of your life forever, so this is clearly a part of their lives, too. Was this the thing that, like, your wife said no more? Was there, like, a final straw, or was it like, I mean, because I would imagine that if you thought 9-11 was a false flag, she could probably live with that. It's pretty inconsequential to one's life. Maybe COVID had an effect. Maybe Flat Earth had an effect. Was there a single thing where she was just like, it's too much? No, it was the accumulated impact. You know, I'm Mach 5 with my hair on fire, so I don't, you know, I'm a content creator. You know, and on that note, if it was flat earth or moon landing stuff, I would have walked away for the sake of my marriage. I did, actually. I shut my channel down twice to try to save my marriage. But what happened was, because my sense of destiny around the Bible changing, and the fact that 99% of the entire church either doesn't know it's happening or refuses to acknowledge that it's happening, I felt, you know, like some men are born to greatness, others have it thrust upon them. I had to do something. And so I did not leave, okay? I was asked to leave. I did not divorce my wife over this. And what I found over the last seven years of being a content creator on YouTube, Wake Up or Else is my channel. I have interacted with tens of thousands of people, and I've personally interacted with 200 probably that have been divorced by their spouses because they found out these things. I mean, the health emergency thing. Are we on YouTube at all with this? I decide afterwards if it goes on YouTube. Actually, usually I put clips on YouTube because I'm on my last strike and this or that. But my YouTube is not what it used to be. The real meat is just the podcast feed, the audio. So say whatever you want and let the chips fall where they may. All right. So because of what I call the monkey juice, right? There was a lot of marriages that broke up just over that. That's true. Or the Patriot movement has broken up tons of families. It doesn't take all 10 or 15 big conspiracy theories. It could be one. And what happens is what I found in my research and being in this for seven years full time is it isn't the truther for the most part. It is the normie that is the one that gives ultimatums. I was told if you talk about crazy things, I can't have a relationship with you. My kids told me that. My wife told me that. I don't issue ultimatums like that. You don't, listener. We don't do that. Okay, so my job in this world is to encourage you and to congratulate you for having integrity, which is at the core of what drives you. 
You found out things that were true, but they were unpleasant. And you decided, I don't care what the consequences are. I have integrity. I love the truth. That's why we're called truthers. But the normie runs a little algorithm in the back of their peanut brain that says, whoa, if I question officialdom, I'm going to walk through a crap storm. I'd prefer not to do that because, first of all, I'm very smart, and I'd have to be stupid for them to trick me into thinking the earth is flat, so my pride won't allow me to acknowledge that it's obvious. Plus, if I do that, I'm going to be raked over the coals like I do to other people. So I better just pretend that this person is crazy. See, the reason they attack you instead of having a, an intelligent discourse is because there's too much meat on the bones of our arguments. Okay, why is the earth round if I can see 50 miles at night as a mariner? I can see the lighthouse. The tallest lighthouse is 400 feet tall. At 50 miles away, there should be 1,500 feet of curvature. Uh, that is true. There's a lot of those strange things. I know you've linked to Eric DeBay's massive YouTube video. I think it's six hours long, and that was an interview I did that he makes a lot of really interesting points. I find it kind of largely inconsequential compared to something like COVID that was deep in everybody's lives on a daily basis and how they lived and acted. But your book starts with this. It says, if you journey down the proverbial rabbit hole, and it has cost you friends and family, destroyed your marriage, convinced loved ones you're crazy, and has made your life a veil of tears, this book is for you, because I've experienced all four of these things, and you told us a little bit about that. I've also heard you say that three of your four children won't talk to you and said, if you're going to talk about this stuff, we can't have a relationship. That's extremely heartbreaking. I'm a new dad of two kids under two, and I can only imagine that happening down the road. It would be pretty brutal. And I understand the sense of purpose and destiny, but man, I just have to think there might be a point where I would think, is it worth it? Wouldn't there have been some version of events where you could be a little more subtle with your thoughts and still have this relationship and influence your kids and still have an intact family? Because what is life really about in the end, I know you say you tried that, but we can have our controversial thoughts and keep them to ourselves when the cost goes beyond a certain point, can't we? Because if we think about what the elite really want, it's to divide us and to break up families and to keep us all from climbing the ladder collectively together, which requires some cooperation, especially on a family level. Look how they operate. So did the elite win with you? No, no, because the sentiment of not shoving things down people's throat is valid, and I teach that myself. However, when it's your wife that is opposing the truth, and you have to try to be the husband and the father of children where you're raising them, you're forced to make a lot of decisions together, and your worldview just flipped upside down. And, you know, I started saying, honey, I got off the bus. I can't do life like I used to. I can't clap like a trained seal when they trounce out the latest recruits at the football game. 
because all wars are banker wars. And I can't salute the flag because it's the Jolly Roger. And now I'm an American state national. I can't pretend the Bible's not changing sitting in church. However, what I did was I tried to do what you said. I remained quiet for two years, but it got worse because the elephant in the room is you're a kook. You're a nut job. My kids basically told me they're pissed off at me because they believe I'm a weak-minded boob that has believed Photoshop tricks, and then I chose those stupid lies over them, so they're offended. And there's no fixing that, okay? Because again, there was a number of times when I would go to them and say, honey, look, let's try to talk. Let's just share. Tell me how you're feeling. I don't want to talk about it. Okay, so not only can you not reason with them and show them, look, here's a picture of the earth from the moon and it's this big. And then you have a picture of the moon from the earth and it's the same size, but the earth is four times larger. How could that be? They won't do that. They will not use their reason to try to build bridges of understanding. So you're shut off, you're cut off from reason. And then you're cut off from trying to talk about matters of the heart. So for two years, I would go to the dinner table. I would just sit there and I'd just eat. I called it happy dad. I was forced to be happy dad and talk about hair, nails, movies, play dates, fun, fun seasons in the sun. That's all they want to talk about because the normie just wants their happy life. And what you are, truther, what you are is a buzzkill, okay? You're a buzzkill and they don't want to be told in the superhero movies that the portal is real and there's real wicked mad scientists like Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and these people that operate in these, you know, very empirical realms, like all the way up the corporations, the IMF, the central banks, the Bank of International Settlements, the Bilderberg, the United Nations, Chatham House, Freemason Lodges, all the way up to the think tanks of the Trilateral Commission, the Vatican Crown, Washington, you've got the three city states, then you've got the Committee of 300, the Council of 13, and then the Pinyard, right? They don't care about any of those things. They want to go play basketball. And I get it. They just want a dad who loves them and wants to be in their life. And I tried to provide that. But I was given an ultimatum. Okay, so here's my response to your very valid observation, okay? I want you to imagine two people one of them gets radically born again. They're two atheists, okay? Two atheists get married. And then one of them gets radically born again, filled with the Holy Spirit and loves Jesus all of a sudden. And the other one's looking at him like, oh boy, I'm glad you're happy, but there's a complete paradigm shift of the worldview. And then after about, let's say it's you, okay? Greg, let's say you're the one that got born again. And now your wife comes to you and says, listen, Greg, I'm glad you're happy but you're going to have to choose. It's either Jesus or me. I'm here to tell you <laughs> that I would not even have to pray about that one. I would not even have to think very long. Honey, I love you, but if you're going to throw down the gauntlet, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to take door number two where Carol Merrill is now standing. Right, and that's fair to say. I actually think about this quite a bit. Luckily, my wife, is on my page with a lot of this stuff. She was very supportive in me starting this show, which has just been insanely 
lucrative and successful and it's gotten me out of a shitty job and the rat race. And so, you know, she gets it. She might not let it occupy as much of her mental space as it does for me, but she doesn't argue with any of it. Like she's very much open-minded and on that page, but there has to be all kinds of things that break up marriages. As you mentioned, someone becoming born again or someone deciding they're gay or trans or a number of things. And I just don't know how exactly to feel about that because when you make a commitment to a person and then you radically change the direction of your own ship, I mean, that's not what they signed up for. So I think it's important to have a lot of these conversations before marriage and make sure, especially with the vaccination thing, you're going to have kids probably. And when you make that decision, it also means that you can't go to most schools and it means that your family might have real problems with it. So you have to be able to stand your ground. So yeah, that kind of stuff is important. Of course, some people's awakening comes after the point of marriage and there's nothing you can really do about that. But, uh, you know, when you get married and you have common belief systems and worldviews, I think if you alter that worldview and you go 180 degrees in a different direction, I don't necessarily a lot of times fault a partner for being like, well, I married a straight man. Now you're telling me you're a gay woman. Like, you know, just to use an extreme example that does happen. It's not always their fault. I don't know exactly what could be done about that. But something I think about a lot is that phrase, ignorance is bliss. You kind of touched on that. I know people who are actually happy with low wage, long hour jobs because they've never had the thought about how much better it could be. And when I had a regular job, I remember how miserable I was. There were nights where my now wife would be in tears saying, I love you, but I worry that you're never going to be happy. And I honestly wasn't going to be able to let a job take 50 hours of my week and barely pay enough to scrap by. And so we were in a situation where I threw a Hail Mary pass and it worked out. But she was like, I can't be with someone who's going to be miserable forever. So you figure it out or this just won't work. And, you know, luckily I figured it out. But I've thought a lot about that phrase because sometimes I'm jealous of those who can work a shitty middle management job for some typical corporation and be happy. I actually would get envious of that and start wishing that I was more ignorant so I could just enjoy the basic life because it's a lot easier to achieve that when you think that that's the path, you know, it it gets difficult. So I don't know, a lot of things in here, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have dealt with one aspect of it or another, but we walk a, a wobbly road, man. Well, I'll apply what you just said to the journey of the truther, because you said a spouse might say, I can't be with someone who's going to be miserable their whole life. Well, that becomes the perception of the normie, because when you become a truther, one of the things that happens is your values change, your ideals change, what you prioritize. You basically go from living on a cruise liner to living on a battleship. You go to a war footing because you find out the people that run things are actually Luciferian, blood-drinking, pedivore, psychomobsters. And they have an agenda to kill everybody. I mean, that's what the Guidestones told us. Reduce the population to 500 million. Well, hello, they've operationalized 
that whole thing. And we were right. But they don't know that still to this day. They don't know that. And so you're all of a sudden freaked out. okay? and then you're finding out all these rabbit holes. And so you're looked upon as obsessed by your spouse. So it creates a very intangible family dynamic when you start finding out all this horrible stuff. Like most of what we traffic in is bad news, right? So what happens though is you're implacable. You refuse to come off of something because you have an instinct for survival, right? I don't take kindly to being slow killed and enslaved. <laughs> no. All right. You know, the whole tax scheme is a terrible enslavement that we can escape from. That would not go over with my wife. There's no way she would bite down on being in a state national and repudiating your 14th Amendment status and, you know, talking back to the police and all this. I mean, it's crazy to her. So they view you as going rogue and they view you as falling in with a bad crowd because now you're unpatriotic. No, you are the most patriotic. And so one of the greatest revelations is when I looked up the term normal in the dictionary, because my daughter said, Dad, I wish you were normal. And I looked it up. And normal means you're in compliance with the rules. Well, that's the opposite of a truther. A truther is now questioning the rules. They're now beginning to question for the first time. And you're looking, okay, but the normies like the British guards. You know the British guards where they just look forward and you go up and you go, hey, you try to get them to like look, right? Normies don't look. <laughs> they will not look at your three-ring binder, okay, filled with evidence. You're thinking the shock and awe approach. Well, surely if I show them enough examples, they'll be convinced. <laughs> That's a great point. And I like that you've talked about that before, that in the truther mind, it's just like, oh, well, they haven't been presented with the right evidence yet. They haven't been presented with the facts like I have. And then you present them. And they still don't see it. And that's because it is a faith-based argument. They believe in the structures of the system. They trust the system. They have faith in it. And you can't break faith with facts. And that is why I'm so averse to religious thinking. I have faith in my own discernment. And that's basically it. And I can't trust some old book. I can't trust some preacher. I just can't because there's too much manipulation, too many layers of propaganda. And so I have an open mind and take in a lot of different perspectives and different information, but I keep it all kind of at arm's length because it just seems wise to do. And if there's a God who looks at this system the way it is and the way I'm choosing to navigate it and thinks that I've done something wrong and deserve to burn in hell, then fuck that God. I don't care. That's kind of my general perspective, because imagine getting kicked out of a Mormon family for wanting to do something different or getting kicked out of an Amish family for wanting to have a Zoom conversation like we're having right now. People put arbitrary rules out there and say you must live within these guidelines, whether it's a normie cult or a religious cult, I don't see a ton of difference. Sure. And, you know, I get it, man. I get it. There's a lot of questions around how God runs this universe. And after walking with this God for 40 years, you know, I finally came to where he spoke to me once 
And he said, John, do you have any other questions before you're ready to follow me? So basically, the answer to some questions is there is no answer this side of eternity. And so Jesus said, you got to come as a child. So the issue is a man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an argument. So your arguments sound rational until you meet Jesus. So I walked into a church at 23 years old. My goal at that point was to be a rock star and to have a Porsche with a car phone. That was what was on my radar. Okay, <laughs> And at that point, I was the biggest drug dealer in high school. I started smoking when I was four. And so I'd already lived three lives, small story <laughs> short, by the time I walked in there. And I go into this little church in Newark, New Jersey, and it was just about, you know, 50 people, whatever. And this little old lady on the out-of-tune piano and this teenager on the drums. And they're singing this song like, lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher. <laughs> and to me, the rational part of me was like, whoa, I, I'm like looking for an exit strategy. I didn't want to embarrass myself or anybody, but this was so corny. However, okay, there was this other compartment of me that all of a sudden was feeling like warm cream being poured into my dark soul. Okay? Hey, now. So all, all I could tell you, <laughs> it was love on steroids in the air. So that seized me. I was like, whoa. And the people had joy and they're like, free. And I don't know, man, it was just like another world. And this is just singing going on, you know? And I'm thinking, whoa, this is awesome. This is better than the Coke. This is like what I've been looking for. Those are the thoughts that started going through my mind. And so then the guy tells the sermon, you know, Romans 6. I remember telling the lady, hey, why did you tell him about me? That's what I told her. And she's like, honey, I didn't tell him about you. So the word of God, we don't read the word, the word reads us. So at the end, I'm just telling you my journey, man. At the end of the thing, the guy says, if you're here today and you're not absolutely sure you go to heaven, you can come up and receive the gift of eternal life. And I was like, if I went to die right now, I'm absolutely sure I wouldn't go to heaven. <laughs> so I jumped over to pew and I said the little prayer and nothing happened, no bomb, columns of light, nothing. But the next day, I'm down in the basement with Tom Daglish and my friend Rob Paul. We're getting high. They passed me to joint and I looked at it and I was like, I'm not interested. Oh, say it ain't so. But God made the plant. Bro, but <laughs> I had changed. I looked at it and I was like, you can't get higher than the most high. I was already high. Well, it's nice to be inspired for sure. And dig it. Lots of people have felt the warm cream in the dark corners of the church. But in terms of the archetypal thing we're talking about, the conspiracy theorist who awakens and their life kind of falls apart. Funny enough, that is the sort of thing I've tried to transmute through the course of this show. I've tried to reinforce the idea that your worldview should serve you or your worldview should improve your life. Thinking critically should be an asset in one's life, not a liability. And if it isn't, maybe there needs to be a new approach. And I know every situation is different, but the system does try to pigeonhole and isolate us as your book discusses. But with a lot of this material, what are we really talking about? Avoid the pitfalls of big pharma, eat organic, avoid glyphosate, make sure your water is clean and unfluoridated, have a proper sense of what fiat really is and how the economy works, never get too vested in any politician, avoid the rat race life, no job is ever going to pay you what you're worth independently. No one is going to save you, so you have to 
pull yourself up and thrive despite the uphill battle. So there's a version of things where the fruits of these bullet points provide a positive example for what it is to be in this camp, a healthier person who doesn't eat the mainstream shit, a happier person than one who tried to work in some shitty company because that's what they thought they were supposed to do, even a more mentally stable person than those being traumatized repeatedly by the next news cycle. These are the kind of things I think about because they paint us as paranoid. Well, am I paranoid or is it the person mind controlled by mainstream TV that's paranoid? We're thought of as irrational, largely unhealthy, living in some basement, not getting sunlight and all this. I disagree. So I try to flip a lot of those things because, as you say in the book, the CIA invented the term conspiracy theorist as a pejorative. And I guess I'm trying to take that culture back or say there's got to be a way that truth can serve us and make our lives better and screw your perception or your projection of what a truther really is. I'm going to flip that. The worldview has to serve you or it's a bad worldview. And I cannot conclude that our worldview is bad or wrong. Great. Awesome. Okay. So you said a lot. First of all, here's a million dollar tip. This is in the book. When I was silent for two years, I still was getting persecuted because we'd be watching the TV show or whatever with the kids and the term conspiracy theory would come up and they'd all look at me and giggle. Well, that's disrespectful. That's shaming me. And I didn't appreciate it. I'm trying to comply with your gag order and your censorship and I'm still getting slimed. So I came up with this. Hold up your right finger. Say, excuse me, I may be mistaken, but I am not crazy. And I'd appreciate it if you didn't use those terms to me. It's very disrespectful. When I started doing that, man, things really started improving for me, okay? Because you mentioned obsession. Obsession is an attack vector, okay? In other words, if you're in a burning building, you should be obsessed, okay? You just found out that the world is run by Luciferian blood-drinking psychomobsters. A normal person reacts to that very dramatically, not like the normie does, where they don't want to know. It's like you're watching a movie night on Friday night and two thugs kick the door in and you just look up and you go, oh, isn't that interesting? And you go back to watching your movie. That's what we observe. But they use obsession as a way to manipulate. So in other words, obsession is a character flaw in their mind. And it states that you're messed up and you're now disqualified from being my guide and my instructor and warning me and talking to me about, you have to go over and fix that problem in your life first before you can, so it's a way to shut you down. It's another personal ad hominem attack. But that is part of the mind control, what I call the death to truther algorithm. There's no rational reason for the normie to act the way they do. So I'll give you an example. It's in the book. I had this one pastor that we reached out to. I called him up, Pastor Tom, right? Mild-mannered guy. I'm like, listen, my wife and I are having some conflict. Would you mind just sitting down with us and just trying to mediate? Sure, John, no problem. Come on over. Let me ask you, you know, what do you guys wrestle with? I'm like, well, I'm part of a growing number of people who are beginning to question things like the moon landing, the shape of the earth, flat and stationary, like the Bible says, and I'm doing content on the Mandela effect and the Bible's supernaturally changing the end times prophecy. And he's like, 
Well, if that's what you believe, you're nuts, and I can't help you. Click. Now, a minute later, the guy calls me back and apologizes. But that's an example of a triggered response that isn't consistent with these people's character, right? So they jump in your grill, and they don't have a rational argument. They attack you. And then you have to defend you. And you're like, well, that's irrelevant. I'm not, you know, it's just a a battle that we are in. And we have to realize that. And so in response to your statement, though, what's the response to this? That's what you're basically saying. The response to tyranny is to be salt, okay? Because a lot of folks are trying to lay low, okay? I'm going to lay low, go along to get along. Well, no, those days are over, okay? They're coming for us. And you have to be like, William Wallace, okay? All men die, but not all men live. And they're going to come for you in a hundred different ways. I mean, they've blown up 120 food manufacturing plants since January. You're derailing trains and chemical spills to drive you into the 15-minute cities. You've got this ghoul, John Kerry, parading around in his private jet, telling us that we have to shut down the farms because their carbon footprint I mean, these people are obviously wacko. And then they're weaponizing the IRS. They're going to drop the minimum reporting to $600. And so, you know, everything's going to go to them. They're closing the banks. The Fed coins in operation. The pandemics, this first one was just a test case to see how we would respond. They're using lawfare to put people in prison. Jan 6 and all that. They're debanking people. If you get out of line, it's like the credit scores around the corner. They're trying to start World War III. In Ukraine, that didn't work, so they jumped over to Israel. And of course, the censorship is just ratcheting up, and it just goes on and on and on. So what are you going to do? You're going to do what you do, bro. <laughs> do it. I agree with so many of those things that you said. Two quotes come to mind. You made some points about obsession that were good. Well, when it comes to the material and our tendency to get obsessed with it and keeping an eye on every little thing, I kind of think attention is a currency and they want our attention one way or another. Does it matter if we're spending eight hours a day on conspiracy blogs or MSNBC or Fox News? Does it matter as long as our focus is on an obsession about their machinations up here? rather than what actually hits our lives or potentially hypotheticals. I think you can find this quote attributed to Terrence McKenna and Alan Watts and all kinds of people. I think it was in Huxley's book, though. But the quote is, when you've got the message, hang up the phone. So it's like, I understand that everything is twisted and unfair. And I understand there's a power hierarchy and it's kind of hidden behind the matrix veil. Not that I've hung up the phone. This is my job. But for most other people, like when you see some of that stuff, it's like, okay, I get it. Now I'm going to go live my life according to my new understanding. And the other quote, when it comes to dealing with others that comes to mind, when it comes to how do we navigate when so many people disagree with us about these things, it's a quote from Hamilton where he says, talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. And I use that a lot when I'm navigating through life. 
and there's people I enjoy their company when we play golf. They don't need to know what I think about 9-11. They barely need to know what I do for work. As long as we can have a good time when we're out there and there's a high laughs per minute ratio. That's what I'm looking for in a good time. So I think it's actually good to keep our thoughts closer to the chest sometimes so that we can actually improve the quality of our experiences with other people, which I think life is about experience and trying to have more good times than bad. Yeah, so I think what you're talking about is what's your priorities or what I call your ideals. I mean, your ideal might be enlightenment. So you might have a life path that's more like a Buddhist monk where you spend most of your time in deep meditation and fasting and you're, you know, practicing being in the present, like chop wood, carry water, or it might be contribution which is your ideal, where you have a sense of that you're on a crusade to make a difference. You only get one life to live. You have a sense that you're born for greatness. There's a sense of destiny behind a lot of truth. There's decision to carry the truth, to be an agent of change. They sense destiny has come to them, and they feel a burden to respond no matter what the cost. That is a major theme. I just wanted to focus on that theme for a minute, because it's definitely in the mix that people get, some would say, delusions of grandeur when it comes to, I've got to carry the torch for this conspiracy, this knowledge that I've learned. I've got to shout it from the rooftops. And yet, a lot of us also acknowledge that this is a individualized process of awakening, a journey, and it can't really be sped up for other people. The three kids that won't talk to you today, in two decades, they might think that you had it all right, but you're not going to be able to speed up their process of awakening. You can lead a horse to water, can't make them drink, and all that stuff. But for a lot of people who start to get these feelings of, I must now be a prophet for the flat earth or 9-11 or fluoridated water or chemtrails or whatever it may be, where does that usually go? And I think you can tell by the fruits if the idea that this is part of their destiny is accurate or if it is a miscalculation. Because a lot of times I see people take that tact and spiral into obscurity. And my assessment of that is, well, you clearly didn't find the right life path or it would have gone a different way. Yes, the idea that you can tell them by the fruits, the fact that I'm divorced and my kids don't talk to me, would maybe be used to suggest that my manner of dealing with these things is incorrect. However, that is not a measurement of how truth impacts. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, and I will pit mother against father, son against daughter, and the members of your own household will be your enemies. Yikes. And so... The 12 disciples, 11 of them were martyred, some of them terribly. Peter was crucified upside down, and then the last one was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. So a trail of dead bodies behind you doesn't necessarily mean that you're off. <laughs> well, what should be the measure that we are let me, on let our individualized life one, path? One other, this is another super important observation you made, and that's the observation that people can only 
come at their pace. Well, the problem with that concept is that you don't know who is ready. Because what I find in my ministry on YouTube is that people come across my video and my video is the thing that gets them to look and then they are convinced. So I don't know who's ready, but by being a voice to the topic, I am able to convert a lot of people. And then my goal is to help disciple them, to like educate them. How do you, okay, now that you're one of the kooks and the people around you are not happy with you, how do you deal with that? So that's my response to the idea of what I call fatalism. Don't bother talking to anybody because they need to find out on their own. No, that's not how it works. We're supposed to tell and warn. It would be like if you're walking down the street and your family you know is at two in the morning, but they're all asleep, but their house is burning. Okay, you're not going to say, oh, it's none of my business. That's just know? their journey to burn alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> you got to step into stuff, man. And be nosy and do things. <laughs> I get that point. I do. But I guess I don't see it as my responsibility to convert other people. I live my life as an example. That's kind of what I was getting at earlier with the archetype. That's of like, not true. Greg, look at you. You're a podcaster. What are you talking about? You are an influencer. You're uh, doing I'm preaching to time. the converted. I'm preaching to the converted. No, most of the time. no. You're discipling. You're trying to bring your point by bringing me on. Okay or bringing your guests on, you're acting as an agent of change. So I don't really think you believe what you're saying. <laughs> well, going back to that archetype, they try to paint conspiracy rabbit holes as something that will derail your life. Now, I mean, you know, we're talking to someone who has had some issues in that department, but I guess I'm saying that, like, here's a great example. I have this artwork I keep on my desk that is you know, COVID artwork. It's a family walking maskless through the crowd while everybody else is paranoid with a gas mask on and that kind of thing. And I think there were a lot of memes during COVID that hit at that truth, which is like, no, the conspiracy theorist is the one who has less fear than the normie. And that's kind of the archetype I try to project. Like my life is so much better because I learned that I was trapped in a matrix. I have navigated accordingly, got out of that shitty job, become my own person, made a successful business as an independent person. And I get more sunlight than I used to because I understand the value of it. I eat better food than I used to because I understand the value of it. And in every category, my life is better from going down the rabbit hole. And that's kind of what you know, I'm trying to get at is I try to lead by an example. Like there's people in my life that definitely aren't conspiracy theorists, but they look at me and they're like, man, like what part of his life isn't together? And I hope that that inspires them to take the same journey. I don't have to tell them anything. I just have to show. And I think that might be a better approach for some people. Maybe when your kids see how successful you've gotten and uh, all these different things that you could manifest over the next 10 years, maybe they start coming around and say, man, dad isn't crazy because a crazy person couldn't achieve these things. Yeah, social proof. But see, they don't want to know about my social proof. So it's kind of like if the cops came to my door and said, does so-and-so live here? Like they named my son, right? Yes. Well, we're here to arrest him for murder. Well, you must have the wrong house. And then they confirm it's him. 
And then they say, well, that's impossible. And then they say, well, we have proof. And this is what I would say. I don't care what proof you have. I know my son. So the people that were trying to show the social proof, you know, that I have millions of people that want to listen to me and you think I'm crazy. What does that mean to you? They don't care. They refuse to let it go in. So the truth or journey is very common for it to be a rocky road. Okay, it's not easy to have your worldview turned upside down, to find out that the infrastructure, the power structure is lying, including the media. Like, that was the biggest impact thing when 9-11, okay, I remember that what really got me was I watched Loose Change or one of those documentaries, and it showed like two or three commercial airliners that had bird hits, okay, on the nose cone. <laughs> So the nose cone of the plane is completely imploded, right, from birds, all right? Yet the media shows me the plane hits the thing and then it comes out the other end for about two or three seconds and the nose cone is fully intact. So their CGI messed up. They allowed the plane <laughs> to go all the way through with the full nose cone, went through, oh, I don't know, thousands of feet of concrete and steel and perfectly intact. That's what convinced me. You're in the CGI planes camp. Okay, okay, <laughs> I get it. But here's what I want to say is your story is not over. You're in a difficult chapter, but your story is not over. And you might actually be thankful for this chapter in the long run. Your bonds with your family, kids in particular, may be stronger at the end. And you can, on a daily basis, navigate towards that with intention, I believe. Well, let me just point something out. You are one of the few that are very fortunate because in my interaction with thousands of people, okay, there's basically three types of spouses for a truther. The first is what I have lovingly, okay, my wife is awesome. I begged her not to do it. I begged her three months ago, honey, I, I love you. This is madness. I want to be married to you. You know, don't do this. I don't want to be married to you We're in two different worlds. So the normie is just like, no, Shut up or else. And then the second type of spouse is one that is a normie, but they have grace. So they allow you to have your obsession. They don't want to really talk about it, but they're not going to break up things over it. Okay. And then the third one, which is the luckiest one, they are married to a truther. So you got two truthers, and that's fairly rare. What's the most common is my situation. Yeah. And I think a part of it for me was going through this process very early. I mean, I'm talking about this stuff in high school and college, and thus it's filtered into a lot of my relationships from the ground up. It wasn't some radical change I made after making a commitment to a person and starting a family and then taking it in a different direction, which is kind of what I meant by that earlier stuff. But really, it's just that me and my wife might not agree on every single thing top to bottom, but we trust each other's discernment and we trust each other's logical process. And as long as we always apply a similar type of logic to various situations, even if we're not exactly 100% aligned, we can see where the other is coming from. And we have faith in each other that neither one of us is going to radically disrupt the ship and suddenly become evangelical or trans or any of the wild things <laughs> that could derail a stable situation. And I guess I'm very fortunate for that. And 
I didn't necessarily calculate that out. It just, I got lucky, I guess, I suppose. Yeah, each situation is really different. Like, there was a next door neighbor that I had who was a total truther. I mean, we would have talks over the fence and she'd be like, so do you know about the Project Bluebeam? I'm like, of course. <laughs> really? <laughs> and so she was down the rabbit hole, but she had a husband who was very successful. He had like 13 rental properties. He retired from Duke Energy. They were living large. And she didn't say boo, okay, to him or the kids. She was total secret agent. And I totally understand, all right? Me, I told my wife and stuff. And then after a while, I shut up. But I was like, I got to go over here and make videos, okay? See, what I got was an ultimatum that I can't even do that. I basically had to recant. And I was going to do it, but I had this kind of a vision. It wasn't like a vision. Woo! I was just sitting there, and all of a sudden, I imagined Peter, the Apostle Peter. Now, this guy was a fisherman, right? So he was just doing life. And it says, Jesus came along and said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Ten words. And it's the next verse says, he immediately dropped his nets and followed. So this is what I imagined. And then, of course, Peter goes on to, you know, be an apostle and, you know, all this stuff. Imagine if he went back to his house and he's like, honey, I met the Messiah and I'm going to follow him. And she's like, what? What are you talking about? How are you going to provide for us? Uh, you're a fisherman. Your father was a fisherman. Your grand you're not going anywhere. And what if Peter went like this? Yes, dear. <laughs> yeah, I guess the whole story would be different. Yep. <laughs> But yeah, man, it is about that time where we wrap things up. I guess I'd like to try to put a finer point on the book's themes and your message to the conspiracy-minded trying to avoid these feelings of isolation, frustration, depression, and all the rest of it, stuff that often does hit a bit harder during the holidays in which we are in the midst of. What would you say in summary, advice for the persecuted truther as we get into the holidays and the end of the world, or end of the world, Freudian slip, end of the year. Yeah, what would you say? All right. Well, the book is called The Conspiracy Theorist Survival Guide. You can get it on Amazon. It's available in audio or paperback. You can also get it from my website, wakeuporelse.com. And it's a guidebook for persecuted truthers. It's an emotional, spiritual, intellectual guide. It's going to help validate your position, give you guidance. It's really People say they can't put it down. If you're a truther, you're going to love the book. Now, what I would say in closing is being a truther is kind of like going bald, okay? You can go bald and be happy, or you can go bald and be obsessed and depressed about it. But either way, you're going bald, okay? <laughs> I know that. So you're a truther, man. You're a truther, lady, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't unsee what you see. Right. So you can't put yourself back in the box and go be a normie. So you're going to have to figure out how to walk the walk. And that's what I talk about on my channel. Wake up or else. How do you do this? Because this is a nightmare. Okay. I cry every day, almost without exception. I cry every day. And there's a lot of people. I mean, I have reams of people that have posted, John, my kids don't talk to me. John, my kids don't talk. To me. My wife and I are ready for a divorce. It's universal. Your exception, Greg, the impact of finding out this stuff and the pushback is universally the same. That's why the book is so resonates. 
you're going to see yourself in this book and you're going to be laughing and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I'm doing. So be encouraged, okay? Be encouraged. You're not wrong. You're not crazy. It's not your fault. It's the fault of the normie. They're dragging you through this crap storm. They don't want to know, and they should know. The truth is not optional, okay? It's not optional if you have integrity. They're lying to themselves and to you, and then instead of dealing with it, they're attacking you to shut you up. It's really evil, okay? So be encouraged. You're a good person. And the reason that you want to tell people about what you found out is because you care. That's a good attribute, okay? I agree. Well said. And it's hard to not be bitter at the normies because if they would get on board with us, we could build a better world. The only strength we have against the cabal is our numbers. So when they break us up into all these different camps that fight amongst each other and they keep the truth hidden, yeah, it's hard not to be frustrated because we know we could build a better world, but the people who should be aligned with us to do so are still drinking the Kool-Aid. Yes, that's a sad thing. And uh, I really empathize for you. I absolutely loved the book and I understand exactly the things you're talking about. It's not that it hasn't happened on the periphery of my life. It definitely has, but it just hasn't really affected my core, you know, thank God. But I see it happen all the time. I know people who have gone through this process. I seriously empathize with it. And it's just really sad to see because when I think about the elites plan at the end of the day, it's to divide us. So when we are divided from our loved ones and our house is divided against itself, well, that seems like what they want ultimately. And that's unfortunate that it happens because when you look at how they've built wealth through the generations, it is multi-generational. It's putting their families in positions of power. It's having a lot of kids to cover the spread in a certain sector and dominate. And when we are separated from our wives and kids, we can't do that. And they love to see that. So it sucks that awakening can sometimes feel like one step forward, two steps back in a certain sense. Your story is not over. The people listening, their stories are not over. Maybe you've been through a rough patch in a rough couple of years, but maybe the people in your life will reach an awakening point and a crisis of consciousness with their worldview, and they will immediately have the thought, huh, maybe dad was right. Maybe my brother was right. You know, these kind of things. And you'll be the first person on their list to help them reconcile with their new understanding of the world. So I wish you the best. I hope that that reality does manifest for you. I've had a great time talking to you. We've laughed, we've cried. <laughs> and uh, no family should be broken up over this or anything, but I understand how it happens. Best of luck out there. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for talking to me and keep fighting the good fight. Greg, thanks so much for having me. It was a great interview. I really uh, appreciate how you handled the interview. And I thank your audience for receiving me. And Appreciate the time to share my journey. Thanks so much. Of course. Cheers. Oh, happy holidays, guys. <laughs> Man, I really did think this was interesting and fun. 
I've seen John popping up on a couple other podcasts, so I'm glad that other hosts are responding to his call as well. The thought with this one really was to talk about how we approach these topics with other people, how we incorporate a conspiratorial view in our lives, the common situations we might find ourselves in, and just showing a little solidarity in that we all likely experience some of these things to at least a small degree. I've had my worldview affect relationships, just not really ones that were as consequential as the ones in John's life. And I definitely was not trying to flex or rub in how a alternative mindset has improved my life, but I really was just trying to compare and contrast our journeys with the listener in mind in that spirit of the thought that maybe these common side effects of being red-pilled, as they say, can be an asset rather than a liability. And I'm not even trying to be an example. I know that it's all the show that I have to be thankful for, and almost nobody is going to leverage their enjoyment of alternative takes into their new career as a podcast host. That's not the point. But it's a cliche in the conspiracy subculture that it can wreck your life and cause you to go down a schizo-paranoid spiral. And it is a cliche and a stereotype because there is some truth there. It definitely can do that. But it also improves one's life in the simple way that we don't get caught up in the last round of propaganda. And we probably likely have healthier hearts after the last few years. But we also know how important it is to limit our exposure to toxins and eat a whole food, all-natural diet. Through this process, I think we've learned to better appreciate and lean into nature, grounding, good sun, and just divesting from the offerings of the death-promoting industrial chemical system. Social media, another thing I would hope that we've learned to keep at arm's length. There's a lot of stuff that we learn about that is not actually all that controversial and can be implemented without having to explain anything big picture. And by that standard, by that metric, how is the knowledge, if implemented, not an improvement to one's literal life and health, the only one we have? It might hurt us socially, but if a lot of that data is on our side, then it must result in an improved individual life. But regardless of how it affects some of our relationships, we know you can't beat people over the head with this stuff. There is always the desire to share new knowledge, as John mentioned. You learn about a new topic and you just want to talk to everyone about it. But I think restraint is important. It really does help me to have a mindset of, I know what I need to know, and I only share with people who want to hear. I don't mean to be condescending towards the other people in my life, but they have their own strengths and their own qualities that I respect that I don't have, and I love them for other reasons. I think about a buddy I used to have who was just obsessed with dubstep, morning, noon, and night. Well, dude, I don't really like that stuff, so I can't vibe with you on much else if that's going to be the single dimension to your life. I like to think what we do here is a little bit more important than a digital musical genre, but conceptually, there's a parallel there. 
The perspectives we hear on this show, I think, are important, but maybe we can find better ways to represent the truth. Maybe we can just embody it rather than constantly pontificating about it. I shouldn't speculate on John's personal life because I don't know anything more than what he shared today. But is there a world where John's family sees John after a few years with new eyes, looks around at the state of a lot of other people in the world, and then looks at John and thinks that he seems like he's reached an enlightened level of wisdom? He looks his healthiest, even. Maybe it's obvious to them that he appears to be the best version of himself they've ever seen. Maybe they start to think, my dad is a person whose advice and guidance I'd be lucky to have access to. Or this version of my ex-husband is so attractive to me now that I worry that it's me who could never measure up. I think that option exists for John, and if I found myself in a similar position to him, I would like to think that stepping into that would be my highest priority. There is something to be said about the often overlooked, sometimes multi-generational ripple effects of breaking up a family. It certainly is what the big machine likes to see happen, and I'm not sure if it matters to them if it's over fentanyl or false flag awareness. The results are similar. But, you know, the flip side of that is that sometimes you can't go back and do things differently. Consequences last, and if that's the situation we're in, we best recognize it and move forward. Families do break up all the time, and everyone ends up thriving. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic about this either. I'm not even a nuclear family or bust kind of person. I think the reason it works so well is because of the way our system and culture is structured. And there might be other ways, even better ways, but those kind of changes are above our pay grade. The point, really, for listeners is that there are a thousand different ways to process the rabbit hole and to represent yourself. Maybe think of yourself as the hidden background wise man in the lives of your loved ones, a source of subtle influence. You can actually get people to move into the future with you as if everything about the conspiratorial mindset is true without ever really having to get into it like that. As Gordon has said, you don't have to go any deeper with your neighbors than do you think vegetables will get better or worse in quality over the next decade? And also, same question, what about price? Maybe we should work together on this instead of just being a victim of what we see is going to be a worse product that costs more. <laughs> and not that my solution to everything is gardening either, but a lot of the major problems we have, we can't actually do much about. Just knowing doesn't seem to affect change, and we're more likely to get ourselves erased than we are to change anything, sorry to say. But it goes back to what are the actionable steps in all this? What are the things I can do now that make my life and the world better that don't hinge on waiting for some great awakening? Anyway, I hope this was useful if you ever think about such things. And John's book really is a great one to have. I think he had a good time. I hope he gets some really great feedback and words of encouragement from you guys. I also have to say that I really appreciate a guest who is sitting there with a pen and paper jotting down notes. I do that every time. 
And it's been years since I think any guest also did that, to my knowledge. So big thanks to John. I wish him well. The second hour was great, too. I hope you sign up for Plus to hear it, along with all the shows of Christmas past and future that you've only heard half of. Use the links right in your show notes. We just updated them to be less annoying and to ask you for less information. I know most people are signing up on their phones, and I want it to be the easiest sign-up imaginable, right? Then we both win. In higher side news, the last episode with Recluse has certainly been a popular one. 4.8 rating from the Plus members, and the comments seem just as complimentary. The man is thorough and well-spoken, and those are two key ingredients for a good time in a place like this. Let's do the meetup calendar thing, and I'll let you get on with your day. December 16th, we have the London event at the Camden Beer Hall. December 22nd, Sinspiracy 5 at Element Eatery in Cincinnati, Ohio. And December 22nd is also the event in Bulgaria that is a crossover meetup with the No Agenda show. I think our recent Bulgarian guest, Dan Zusoko, is going to try to be there. I'm jealous already, but there it is. Obviously, this episode is a great pitch for how the meetup calendar can be useful, and it's there for you. You're welcome. I am getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, disenfranchised dissidents, initiated outcasts, and truth-bringing black sheep of the families. Your fucking move.